Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Did you know that students get it free? The Irish Times offers a free digital subscription to all full-time undergraduates. Keep up to date for free with quality journalism and reporting. Claim yours today at irishtimes.com slash subscribe slash student. It's Wednesday, October the 26th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Joining me today from London is our political correspondent, Harry McGee, and from Dublin, our political editor, Pat Leahy. Later on, we're going to be discussing events closer to home, including the refugee accommodation crisis and the proposed reform of Irish licensing laws. But first, we turn to the appointment of Rishi Sunak as the third British Prime Minister in about eight weeks. Harry, it's been an historic week. Uh, Two great offices are occupied for the first time by people born in the 1980s. I refer, of course, to the new editor of the Irish Times, but also to the United Kingdom's uh, Prime Minister. Uh, You've been observing proceedings. What do you make of it all? Yeah, he was born in uh, 1980. So at 42, he's the youngest British Prime Minister in over 200 years since William Pitt the Younger. But no more noteworthy, I think, is that, that he's the first uh, Prime Minister of Colour to be elected in the UK. And I think that's reflective of a society that has become extraordinarily multicultural over the past uh, generation. And those of colour have risen to the top, particularly in the Conservative Party. You don't see the same diversity in the upper echelons of the Labour Party as yet. But if you look through uh, the Cabinet, certainly there are four or five members of the new Cabinet who are of ethnic origin, all of whom have very senior roles. And funnily enough, uh, most of them tend to be on the right of the uh, Tory party. Suella Braverman and also Kemi Badenoch uh, would be very much identified with the right uh, wing of the party. Yes, actually, Harry, can I ask you about that? Because I I do think it's quite striking. We were talking to Dennis Staunton a little bit earlier in the summer when the the previous election contest was taking place. And he he talked about how the United Kingdom, in comparison with other European countries, are far greater advanced in terms of tolerance and being a functioning uh, multicultural society. And and certainly that that's telling both in terms of the, the new Tory front bench, the contenders for the leadership during the summer. And and quite a lot of the people on the right, as you say, Kemi Badenoch, Suella Braverman, they're, they're second generation uh, British people. So they come from a sort of an aspirational background. Their parents came from relatively humble backgrounds and, and they saw Britain as somewhere where they could aspire to move up the social ladder and were very bought into that concept of the United Kingdom. And that seems to be something that the, the Tory party in recent years has has quite effectively got a hold of, even if it's not reflected in the overall vote, where I think the vast majority of people of colour in the United Kingdom still vote for the Labour Party. Yes, and I think another factor I think which is important is many of them would have come from business backgrounds. Their parents might have owned small businesses, uh, might have been involved in the professional class, as it were. Rishi Sunak, for example, his mother was a pharmacist. His father was a doctor. They emigrated to Southampton in the late 1970s and ran their own business And it was from that that he launched his career very 
strong business imperative in the family. And if you trace uh, the others who are involved with um, the Conservative Party at the higher level, you will find that there's either a professional or a small business background there. And that, that had become part of their culture. I've noticed it too with some of the Irish immigrants who went over in the 50s and 60s, those who became involved in business, who kind of started their own contracting firms, albeit small contracting uh, firms, tended to vote for the Tories uh, because the Tories were always identified with people uh, who were involved with enterprise. So you got that kind of dichotomy even amongst Irish immigrants who went over in uh, former generations. Uh, it's e- extraordinary uh, to to see, really. You look at Suella Braverman and she is a person who whose uh, uh, forebears arrived into England as, as immigrants and she, as Home Secretary, will be the person now who will be pushing hard uh, for this very controversial Rwanda policy uh, where asylum seekers who come to the UK will have their applications processed not in Surrey or in Kent, but in uh, Central Africa, in the Republic of Rwanda. And that, to me, is an extraordinary turnaround uh, and re- requires uh, some deep psychological probing to understand the basis for such a position. Pat, can I ask you, before we turn to Harry, about what decisions has been made so far by, by Rishi Sunak? What, what do you make of Sunak as a politician? I ask because we, um, we are in our previous podcast, I think it's fair to say we were less than complimentary about the abilities of his predecessor uh, as a politician. So from what you've seen so far of Sunak, what do you make of him? Well, yeah, I suppose to refer back to that conversation we had last week, and I mentioned then that I had watched a fair bit of the Tory hustings and the Tory electoral leadership debates during the summer. And I was reasonably impressed uh, with Sunak, albeit that he was up against what seemed to me to be a uh, a weak and bordering on imbecilic opponent in Liz Truss. But I thought he was, I, I, I was kind of impressed uh, at the way that he didn't try and tell the audiences on that, on those occasions, what they wanted to hear. He told them, you know, that, you know, you couldn't cut taxes and increase spending uh, at the same time, that the word government was about difficult decisions. And he he made the point unsuccessfully at that point, I think, uh, in that process, but nonetheless, which has been proved true that, you know, that the example of Margaret Thatcher, and if you recall how Liz Truss was trying to channel Margaret Thatcher down to the effect of 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 aping some of Thatcher's outfits uh, in in various photo calls he made the point that Margaret Thatcher had tamed inflation and c- got public spending under control before she uh, embarked on a spree of uh, of tax cutting and that's of course correct but it wasn't what audiences wanted to hear at that stage so to the extent that Sunak impressed me. He impressed me by his willingness to stick with his pitch that difficult decisions were needed before tax cuts could be made and so forth. And I suppose he was certainly proved right in his warnings that the trust program of large-scale self-financing tax cuts uh, was a recipe for disaster for Britain's already at that stage precarious national finances. So, I mean, apart from that, I suppose the only thing we can judge him on is his stewardship of the economy during uh, the pandemic when he was, 
you know, willing to borrow hugely, like governments everywhere, he was willing to borrow hugely to finance business and employee supports. That I think was the right thing to do. And he eventually fell out with Boris Johnson because of his unwillingness to run huge deficits after the pandemic at a time when the justification uh, that exists had existed for them uh, had diminished. So I, I'm 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 have been reasonably impressed uh, with him uh, thus far. I think he had a a serious misstep and perhaps a window into a certain part of his uh, political philosophy when he told an audience in I think uh, Gentile Tunbridge Wells that one of his achievements at as Chancellor had been to divert uh, funding from Labour Party era programmes which channeled all funding into deprived inner city areas and he had diverted some of it to uh, uh, to more prosperous places like uh, Tunbridge Wells. So whether that is, as I say, a window into his genuine soul or simply the sort of things you say during uh, an election uh, campaign, I guess, uh, uh, I guess we'll see. Yeah, there's a couple of points, um, Harry, about, I mean, one of the points is made that um, as well as being the youngest, he may possibly be the richest ever prime minister. Uh, he is, uh, he's worth billions, uh, partly because of his own efforts in the financial sector before he became a politician and partly because he married um, a very uh, wealthy woman, um, which got him into trouble about non-domestic tax affairs a couple of years ago too. But more importantly, I suppose, you know, apart from the huge mistake which Liz Truss made with her budget. She was also deemed to have made a number of other political mistakes, including, uh, despite the fact that she hadn't won a majority of her parliamentary party's vote, packing her cabinet with allies. And Sunak has clearly taken another route and he's tried to have... I see your piece in the in the Irish Times this morning. You describe it not as a government of all the talents, but I think it's, it's a government of all the parts of the Conservative Party, at least. Yes, you have a, a very diverse parliamentary party, a broad church, to use the kind of fashionable political phrase that, that ranges from one nation Tories to the far right, people like John Hayes, the uh, European Research Group, who are ardently pro-Brexiteer and quite on the right, and others. So all of them have been infighting for the guts of a decade, ever since David Cameron came to power in 2010. And of course, the big schism came uh, with the Brexit vote in 2016 and the wounds that were caused by Brexit have superated ever since and have never been fully bombed, Hugh. So uh, we had a very badly divided party. I think the main, and I've been making this point in pieces I've been writing over the past couple of days, the main selling points that Rishi Sunak had uh, to his colleagues was, number one, he was not Liz Truss, and number two, he was not Boris Johnson. So uh, he was saying that, that after the chaos and turbulence of the past uh four or five years, that he would bring integrity, calmness, uh, sobriety in all senses of the world when you think about Boris Johnson and uh, professionalism uh, to the Prime Minister, that he would be cool and calm, a steady hand of the tiller. And then his supporters uh, were telling their Conservative colleagues that the Cabinet, he he promised nobody anything and the Cabinet he chose uh, would be a government of all the talents. Uh, or GOAT, as the acronym has it over here, uh, that it would include uh, people who were chosen on the basis of competence rather than on the basis of loyalty. 
And I think in the main, I think he's he's achieved that. Though most, there's no, there aren't very many young ministers who are kind of potential, uh, who have potential or who are unproven talents. Most of the people that he has chosen are very experienced, are heavyweights and are well known. So you see the likes of Dominic Raab coming back as Deputy Prime Minister, Oliver Dowden. Uh, both of them are very close to Rishi Sunak, but both very experienced. We see the big beast, Michael Gove, coming back as levelling up secretary. And he has been a cabinet minister uh, since the Tories came to power in 2010. Uh, Mel Stride, who was chair of the Treasury Committee, is the Work and Pensions Secretary. A per- another person who is considered to be very experienced, another person who is very good uh, with figures. And then you see him taking people from different uh, factions, from the right of the party, Kemi Badenoch. Uh, we see Suella Braverman. Uh, Steve Barclay, who isn't he, he'd be One Nation, is is brought back as Health Secretary. We see him bringing in Trace Coffey, who is Liz Truss's closest confidant and her Deputy Prime Minister. She's brought into the full Cabinet, this time as Environment Secretary. Those who voted for Boris Johnson, like James uh, Cleverly, who was Foreign Secretary, retains his position, as does Ben Wallace, who was Secretary uh, for Defence. And then uh, Nadim Suwahi, uh, the former Chancellor of the Exchequer, short-lived, made an awful fool of himself over the last couple of days of the uh, contest by backing Boris Johnson to the hilt, uh, writing an, an op-ed saying how brilliant Boris Johnson was and how much of a stare he was. And t- as soon as that was printed, Boris Johnson just pulled out and uh, left him high and dry. He's back as um, the chair of the party and a minister without portfolio. So it is a broad church a coalition, but to say to say that he just picked it on competence alone uh, would be stretching the truth a little bit. You, uh, there, there are those who have been loyal to him, very close to him, who he's chosen, and you can also see that there were deals done during the course of the leadership contest as well, and there was a quid pro quo element uh, to be um, to be seen there, and that's particularly true with Suella Braverman. Uh, she was expected to back Boris Johnson. Apparently, uh, Rishi Sunak rang her six times. Uh, during the course of the weekend to try to persuade him to come over to his side and that she did. And I think what she got in return uh, was the job that she had only forfeited six days beforehand. And it wasn't, she didn't uh, resign on a matter of principle. She was actually slung out of the job because it was discovered uh, that she had sent a uh, highly sensitive uh, email. Uh, She had used her own personal account to send it to what she thought was a political advisor, but it actually went uh, to somebody else. So that was a very clear breach of the ministerial code. So I think Rishi Sunak was prepared uh, to overlook that very serious breach of the ministerial code in order to secure his own leadership. And unsurprisingly, uh, the Labour Party uh, zeroed in on that last night, uh, saying that it was murky, that it was a dirty deal uh, that was done to ensure his coronation and uh, it undermined uh, from the very start his claim that it would be a government of integrity and a government of professionalism. Yeah, I suppose, Pat, per, per Harry's point about the, there being a lot of experienced ministers there, there's a lot of experienced ministers knocking around in the Conservative Parliamentary Party because there's been an awful lot of turbulence at the top of the Conservative Party for the last few years and they've been in power for, for quite a long time. So there were quite a lot of experienced people available. The other thing I do wonder though, and I'd, I'd be interested in your view on this, is there's complete received wisdom now among the punditocracy in the United Kingdom that it's a complete gimme for Labour next time around and they're definitely going to win. But I can remember less than three years ago when Boris Johnson 
won his huge majority, that it was completely the received wisdom among the punditocracy, that there was no route back to power for Labour in a single electoral cycle because between the lead the Tories held in England and the fact that they'd lost Scotland to the SNP, they couldn't get back into power. So what's changed or should we just stop believing the punditocracy? Well, you should never stop believing the punditocracy, Hugh, for crying out loud. That's a mad idea. Um, What has changed is not just over recent days, but over recent months, which is the complete collapse of any serious, sober, rational government in the UK. You've had this soap opera of Boris Johnson right from the uh, violating the lockdown rules through to his prolonged defenestration in the early part of the summer, a lengthy leadership contest, then the, you know, comically bad premiership of uh, Liz Trust and now another uh, another leadership. So all, all those things have changed. And, you know, pollsters in the UK would say that something definitive switched between the public and Boris Johnson uh, when the parties in Downing Street were, uh, were, were revealed. And since then, it has simply continued to deteriorate for the Tories. My own view is that, you know, there has been a definitive switch. And not just because you're looking at 25, 35 point leads for Labour uh, in, in the polls. We all know polls can go up and down, but they tend not to go up and down by quite that much. And uh, I, I am paid up member of the punditocracy, though I may be. Uh, I, I cannot see that any other rational conclusion is reachable other than uh, that a Labour government, perhaps with a thumping majority, is uh, is now all but inevitable in the next uh, the next election. Remember what Rish, Rishi Sunak's message is not, you know, a great recovery awaits. It's I have essentially I have nothing to offer you but blood, sweat, toil and tears. You know, every if I had a penny, uh, if I had a devalued pound sterling for every time I've heard a Tory minister in recent days say difficult decisions are uh, awaited. Well, that's a euphemism, I think, for tax increases and massive public spending cuts. And they tend not to be the sort of things that are popular with the uh, with voters. And then a last question to you, Pat, before we take a quick break. Uh, what does all this mean for us? And specifically, what does it mean for the uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol? The same team has been left in place in the Northern Ireland office. You've been reporting in recent days that there's a kind of a, there's an optimism in, in Merrion Street about these developments. Yes, indeed. As one of our colleagues in the Irish Times has been saying to me in recent days, it's time to look at the big picture. What does this mean for me? But I think that there is a cautious optimism in Dublin about the prospects for an agreement on, on, on the protocol on, on two fronts. One, actually under Liz Truss, despite the fact that people in government were privately saying during the summer that their preference for the next British Prime Minister was anyone but Liz Truss. Despite that, there, there was an improvement in the mood music, a very clear improvement in the mood music between Dublin uh, and London during Truss's pretty short Premiership, and there was a, a a clearly planned effort on the part of the British government to reach out uh, to Dublin. Now, what people who are involved in these discussions in Dublin tell me is that while that was very welcome, that the substance of the British position had not yet 
had not yet moved in talks uh, with the EU. And it remains to be seen whether that does or not. But there is clearly a a willingness and, and a determination in London. And we note that the team in the Northern Ireland office has not changed. There is a willingness to, uh, to, to, to make an effort to have better relations uh, with both the EU uh, and specifically uh, with Dublin. The second thing that is occasioning optimism, uh, causing optimism, I think, in, in Dublin is the fact that Sunak was previously reported to be very cautious when he was Chancellor about the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill because he knew it would worsen relations with the EU and as Chancellor and, you know, trying to guide the British economy, he was worried about the economic effects of uh, of worsening relations and the potential for a trade war. If that was true then, it's even more so now because the British economy and public finances are in a so much weaker position that if Sunak was reluctant to fight a battle on the protocol because of the likely consequences for the British economy, then then the reasoning goes that he uh, will be twice as uh, reluctant to do so now. Otherwise, within Dublin, he's seen as somebody, uh, you know, his reasonably calm, reasonably sensible. People talk about the return of the adults, but also somebody who is hasn't had much exposure or displayed much interest in Northern Ireland uh, in the past. I suppose there's the complicating factor, and we'll get into this now, but there's a complicating factor of what this means within Northern Ireland and the potential for leaving anti-protocol unionism very isolated. But uh, there's certainly a feeling in Dublin that a workable agreement on the protocol is much more likely under, under Sunak than it would have been under his two predecessors. Just a very quick point there. Um, uh, Chris Eaton-Harris, I think the Irish government is delighted that he has been reappointed because he's very experienced. He's a very able guy, very sensible. And he, he even though he'd only been in there a wet week, I think the Irish government had already forged a good relationship with him. I spoke to uh, Simon Coveney's spokesman last night who said that Coveney was very uh, happy that he had been reappointed, welcomed it and uh, hoped that uh, their relationship would progress. And another little kind of straw in the wind was that uh, Sunak uh, signalled last night that he was going to have a conversation with Nicola Sturgeon, uh, the uh, leader of the Scottish government. In her time in government, Liz Truss had not spoken to Nicola Sturgeon and had further poisoned the well in relation to that uh, particular relationship. So it seems that at least Rishi Sunak and his administration seem a a little bit more open uh, to to dialogue and to kind of broadening uh, the conversations both in Scotland and in Northern Ireland. And we will be looking at future podcasts about what, what all of that might mean for the internal politics of Northern Ireland as well. But we're going to take a quick break now. Stick with us. We'll be back after this. And you're welcome back to the podcast. Harry and Pat are still with me. Pat, there was a bit of a spat in the doll yesterday between the leader of Sinn Féin, Mary Lou MacDonald, and the Taoiseach, uh, Micheál Martin, over this increasingly urgent and pressing crisis about accommodating uh, refugees, which has blown up particularly over the last week or so and looks set perhaps to get worse during the winter. As these set-twos between those two individuals often are, it ended up being quite personalised and quite sharp. Yeah, Hugh, I mean, nothing strange about a confrontation between Micheál Martin and Mary Lou MacDonald are a feature of doll exchanges nowadays. This one was a particularly sharp, particularly acerbic, I would have thought, and it centred on this issue of accommodation for Ukrainian refugees. And Mary Lou MacDonald 
said to him, and maybe it's best just to quote this directly, um, she said the government was, quote, not content with denying our own people the right to an affordable, secure roof over their heads. And she would have to say that then extending this catastrophic failure to those coming to Ireland seeking humanitarian assistance. And Micheál Martin picked up on this use of the phrase our own people that Mary Lou MacDonald had Used and he said, "I know what you're. Uh, uh, I know what that is targeted at. I know where that phrase was used." And the the suggestion, it seems to me, from uh, Michal Martin, although we asked at the post cabinet briefing yesterday, we asked his spokesman to elaborate on what the Taoiseach actually meant by that, and he chose not to, and said, "You know, the Taoiseach's words, you know, in the doll, he stood over them." Uh, but he didn't have anything further he to add. He meant it was a dog he whistle, a dog didn't he? Whistle. That's yeah, what he meant. So the suggestion that it was some sort of a nativist dog whistle was the phrase that I used to him in questioning at the post-governor briefing, but he, he chose not to go. Not surprisingly, uh, Sinn Féin utterly rejected this. But Ono Brin on the Sinn Féin benches beside Mary Lou Macdonald was particularly incensed uh, about this. And there was real bitter exchanges between the two sides of uh, of, of the House on it. The issue, I suppose, is the fact that Ukrainian refugees are having to sleep on the floor in or on benches in Dublin airport because there is nowhere to put them, nowhere to, to process them. And Tisha constantly and government ministers constantly make the point that, you know, there's 55,000 of them here. And, you know, this is a, a crisis that caused by the Russian invasion that every European country is struggling to deal with. And all that is true. The criticism from the opposition, from Sinn Féin, but also from across the opposition, is we knew this was coming. You know, six months ago, the government was talking uh, about the potential for 200,000 Ukrainian refugees. But there's been insufficient provision made for those people who we knew were likely to come and that there's been a chronic failure to plan for uh, uh, for this eventuality. And now you're left with the situation where months and months of scrambling to find any available accommodation has basically run out of road. And, and now you're looking at a really serious situation as we head into the winter. And the government is talking about putting up um, prefab modular accommodation for people of converting unused, publicly owned buildings. But as many people in the opposition are saying, isn't this exactly what we were saying six months ago uh, when, the, when the prospect of large numbers of refugees first uh, first dawned? And we don't seem to be very far down the line on that. So I think the government stands reasonably justifiably accused of dragging its heels over the, the provision of large-scale temporary accommodation for refugees. Harry, the way in which this issue has developed and, and is likely to develop over the next while, it plays into the, the biggest single domestic uh, source of political contention, as we know, which is which is housing. But it also raises un, uncomfortable possible questions about there are there are dark lurking forces who would like to use this this crisis for their own ends as well. So there's there's all kinds of ways in which this could pan out over the next few months. Yeah, we spoke about the tolerance um, of society in the UK and uh, we had Nigel Farage and others um, briefly appear in the UK and a couple of far-right parties. But there aren't far-right parties in the UK as we have seen in other European countries. I mean, we have a far-right party which is in government in 
Italy and also in Sweden uh, as well. And we see the rise of far-right parties and anti-immigrant parties in most European uh, countries, with the exception of Britain and Ireland. And um, it, it's it's a little surprising that we, have, we haven't seen the emergence of such a party over here, given the fact that the, the, the issue has become such a big one in the past year. The, the Ukrainian refugee crisis is one part of the equation. The other part is those who are seeking international protection. And their, their numbers have absolutely accelerated this year as well. I think there was about 2,500 last year in the entire year. This year, I think we're heading towards 15,000 coming in looking for international protection, which is going to smash all previous records and puts additional pressure on a situation which was already extremely severe. And we, uh, the authorities are scrambling around to find places for those who are seeking international protection. And the big difficulty we have with our international protection system is that it takes like generations for even one application to be processed. When a person comes in, they make a, an application. The application takes well over two years before a final determination gets made. And then they go into an appeal process. And that appeal process can take years and years and years. If you look at some of the PQs in relation to this, people who have been issued with deportation orders, some of these people arrived into Ireland in 1999 and 2000 and have been slowly wending their way through the system since then. So the actual system for dealing with applications for international protection is broken and certainly needs to be fixed. It takes years at the moment. The Minister for Justice has introduced a number of measures in trying to uh, deal with this problem and trying to expedite the process. But I think it's badly in need of a root and branch reform. In a way, it's become an industry for, for, for one part of uh, the law as well. And if you look at the composition of those who are coming in looking for international protection, a fifth of them are coming from Georgia, which is a country which ha almost has applicant status with the European Union. And uh, most of those coming in from Georgia are, are young men. And to me, it, it, you know, I mean, we, we've, we have taken in hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people from, from other countries over the past decade, and they've all assimilated into uh, society. And I think we should take a decision in relation to those seeking international protection that they just come in and we absorb them and just let them go about their business like everybody else who comes in uh, who, who, as, a, as an economic migrant, which some of, some of those looking for international protection clearly are, or else we adopt a far speedier and perhaps slightly tougher process in which to expedite those. For example, uh, deportation was suspended completely during COVID and has only started up uh, again this year. I think it was Pat who had a, a report yesterday or the day before uh, saying that there were only 60 deportations that actually took place this year, which seems very small number uh, in the context of all the deportation orders that have been uh, issued. And I know that, that that in itself will not uh, solve the problem but I think that, like a lot of things in, in politics, there is a relu reluctance to grab the nettle by the stem and deal with this issue in a comprehensive, thorough and timely manner. And to me, it's just the, the, the whole question of international protection has just been left in abeyance for the past 10 years. And it's just an issue that really needs to be grappled with and needs to be processed just so that it's fair on all sides. Because when you come in... And if you are turned down and then you go to an appellate process, by the time, if, they, if they're taking 10 years to decide your appeal, by the time they're deciding your appeal, you've already put down roots here and you've become a member of society. And it becomes very unfair on you then to be issued with a deportation order. So they have to take a decision that they're either going to allow people to stay 
in principle or else that they're going to have to, to, to introduce a system that can deal with these applications in a timely decisive, clear and apparent manner. Yeah, it's complex. It's a messy issue. I mean, there's also the other issue, uh, Pat, which we won't get into today of the, you know, the proposed ending of direct provision, which I think a lot of people would support, but which has run into the practicalities of there are no, there are no places for people to live out there, even if you do end direct, direct provision and, and what to do about that. We're going to leave that one for the moment. Let me just ask you briefly about a story which we have touched on previously, Pat, which was about Shane Ross's uh, biography of Mary Lou MacDonald. The, the Sunday Independent reported at the weekend um, that Barry Lou McDonald's uh, husband, Martin Lanigan, has sent a legal letter to Shane Ross in relation to a chapter which relates to uh, Mary Lou McDonald's home, the home that she shares with her husband, Martin Martin Lanigan. Without getting into the nitty gritty of that chapter itself, it does raise interesting questions, doesn't it, about how much we should or shouldn't know about the personal financial circumstances of our politicians. We had the Robert Troy incident only a few months ago, and that raised questions about adequate reporting of people's assets. But that's the broader question as well. Should we know how people finance their homes? Well, there's a general consensus that we're entitled to a significant degree of information about the financial affairs of uh, of politicians. That's set down in legislation in the the great cleaning up of Irish politics in the post-tribunal era, which in, introduced things like the Ethics in Public Office Act, the responsibility on politicians to make annual declarations of their uh, of their interests, which should be publicly inspectable. I mean, there isn't anything controversial about the obligation on politicians to disclose their their wealth or are the wealth and interests of people who are connected to them. And that's because it is generally accepted that some degree of publication of this information is is needed to guard against corruption. That's the whole prurience uh, of it. It's not out of prurience or something like that. It's to ensure that there is a visibility on politicians personal financial no, no but just sorry sorry to cut across you here pat and we do have measures which may not always be be completely met you know as we know from 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 recent events but the broader question is where do people get those assets from in the first place and how much should we know about that well there's no point in simply listing the uh, listing the assets i guess unless you know we've some idea where they came from and there's an interplay between what is statutorily required of politicians to disclose and the the legitimate inquiries of the media, part of whose function is to, you know, hold uh, hold politicians those in public office to um, to account. So, I suppose one of the interesting things about the threat from Mary Lou Macdonald's husband to sue Shane Ross is that it seems to me judging by the reporting in the Sunday Independent, to be grounded in in two separate things. One is a claim against Mr. Ross, which he strongly denies that the chapter is defamatory of, the chapter about their home is defamatory of Martin Lanigan. But the other is that it is an intrusion into his privacy. And that is a much less clearly defined area of Law. It is established that there is that certainly that there is a right to privacy, but how that sits beside obligations uh, for politicians to disclose uh, their private financial interests, but also the legitimate queries 
that citizens and the media may have as to politicians, uh, politicians' wealth, uh, I, I think is something which is a lot less clear and, you know, may fall to the courts to decide uh, in, uh, in this instance. I think that one final thing worth adding, though, is, is that there, there is, I mean, we've written about this before. Some people in Sinn Féin are very sensitive about it, but about the proclivity of uh, Sinn Féin politicians to resort to legal threats against both political opponents and the media. And the most celebrated case at the moment is the defamation action by Mary Lou MacDonald against uh, RTE. And that relates to uh, comments that were made during a debate on Morning Ireland earlier this year, which related to the demonstration or a protest by the National Women's Council and the suitability of Sinn Féin, the Sinn Féin leader, Mary Lou MacDonald, being on the platform when government politicians weren't uh, invited. People may remember that. But there was a reference made in a Morning Ireland discussion to the case of Maria Cahill, though it didn't mention it, mention it by name. And as a result of that, Mary Lou MacDonald has taken legal proceedings against RT. Now, the practical result, or one of the practical results of that action is that RTE will either be highly careful or more likely won't at all ask Mary Lou MacDonald about uh, the Maria Cahill case and its handling by Sinn Féin at any stage before the next election and uh, or until the, case is, uh, until the case comes to a conclusion. And that, I think, is self-evidently is a chilling effect on the scrutiny of, of, of public figures. And while nobody would deny you know, the right of public figures to, to defend their reputation, uh, I, I think it is a troubling effect of, uh, of these sort of legal actions that they, whatever their intent is, and people can make up their own minds on that, their effect is to diminish the scope for scrutiny of public figures. And I think that's a problem. I hoped that we could turn to another issue, which was the liberalisation of closing time. But unfortunately, closing time is upon us here. The bell has been rung for this particular session, but we will we will return to that subject in a future podcast. For the moment, though, thanks very much to Harry and to Pat and to our producer, Aideen Finnegan, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. We're going to be back with you very soon indeed. But until then, goodbye and thanks very much for listening.